0: now i'm really sorry to be upsetting you but i have to warn you warn me we were attacked by a werewolf i'm not listening to this on the moors we were attacked by a lycanthrope a werewolf i was murdered an unnatural death and now i walk the earth in limbo until the werewolf's curse is lifted shut up the wolf's
1: bloodline must be severed the last remaining werewolf must
0: be destroyed it's you david what please believe me you'll kill people take your life david kill yourself before you kill others
1: No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. There's nothing to fear except God. Whatever that means to you. Do I look like someone who cares what God thinks? Why do I say this?
0: Because we got holy God. You're listening to The Fear of God. Podcast exploring the intersection between Christianity and the horror genre.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Fear of God. I'm excited because today we are launching. A brand new series. If you enjoyed last year's I Love the 90s, you're in for a treat. Because this is part one of I Love the 80s. A brand new series discussing seminal horror movies from the 80s. This is Nathan Rouse. One of your hosts who grew up in the 80s, um, a, a fantastic decade, if ever one existed. Typically with me, a fellow 80s baby, Reed Lackey, he, he veered off the main road onto the moors. I hope he's going to be okay. Um, I don't even really, if I'm frank, know what that means, but hopefully he'll wind his way back to us very shortly because I actually don't mind just prattling on for an hour plus, but you might. And, and, and what we do here is really for you guys. So I want to be sensitive to that. Um, so hopefully Reed will rejoin us in a moment. While we wait on him, I, I did want to just encourage you. We are, again, jumping into I Love the 80s. If you love the fear of God, and I know you do, let's be honest, uh, especially you, Blake. It's been a while since I've called you out, brother. Um, so if you love the fear of God, we would love if you would go to iTunes Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. I know some of you haven't quite done this yet. 48 of you have, and we love you very dearly for having done so. But I know some of you haven't. Go leave us a rating. Go leave us a review. Um, Even you folks who are like, Christian, shouldn't watch horror movies. Um, You know, we want to hear from you, sort of. Sort of. (laughs) Maybe you don't want to hear back from us. But nonetheless, uh, go leave us a rating. Go leave us a review. Please subscribe to us this is how in the new fandangled world of 2018 which is very far removed from the 1980s this is how things come to matter you know is is people subscribing to things on the internet so yeah please go make those things happen read read your back and your you got your backpack on? Your cat, you look like you've been traipsing through some, some high grass. I, I don't really know. Are I do. You okay?
0: Well, you know, I'm, I'm missing like three weeks of my life. I don't understand, I don't understand exactly oh what happened. Gosh. But I, I know. I just like one moment I was walking around on the moors, backpacking across, like having a great old time. And then all of a sudden I woke up in a hospital and there's all these talk about, you know, and the and the guy who voiced the Muppets was over me, like, you know, telling me all about insurance and all this other weird stuff. And so next thing I know, I don't know. Oh,
1: Obamacare.
0: Yeah. And so, so I don't, I mean, I don't know, but I guess when the next full moon happens, then uh, I guess I'm supposed to feel something, but who knows? I mean, is that another, is that another bite
1: on you? You're just,
0: yes. Last, last week I got bit. Coming to, yes. Bites. Last week I got bit about the face, and this week I've gotten bit about the throat. And so, yeah, I don't know. People, people Goodness just think I look tasty. Brother. I'm, I'm going to start, um, I know I'm gonna start calling myself you know myself uh, short tasty because uh, I can Lord knows I can't be big tasty <laughs>
1: so. oh, gosh I don't even I don't even know what to do with that
0: <laughs> <laughs> most people don't well, either so we, just, right
1: yeah well they just bite they, they just bite and they're like yeah not enough meat <laughs> um, <laughs> good thing they don't see me after that oh, um, no. so read. Welcome to the episode. We're on episode 106.
0: Yes, and I'm very, very excited. This is the launch of not only is Halloween like right around the corner, both the the holiday, but also the the release of the new sequel to John Carpenter's masterpiece, Halloween. But we are in the midst all October of the 80s. We are back in the 80s. We are busting out our Masters of the Universe toys. We're busting out our GR Joe toys. Ninja Turtles. We are busting out Ninja Turtles. We're busting out our Transformers Trapper Keepers. We are busting out our bicycles and our members only. Jacket. We are not getting not Stranger ready. Things season two. Not wow, wow. <laughs> so, but, but we are spending this whole month counting down your 50 favorite horror films of the 1980s. So how this is going to work, we are setting aside our wonderful and beloved segment on what are you watching, reading, and listening to for a month. It will be back. Do not fret. But for this month, uh, we are going to instead count down every single episode. We're going to count down 10 of your favorites from the top 50. And the episode itself is going to be about... A film from your top ten, and then we will reveal the top ten on the final episode. So it's going to be a fun month. I'm super excited. We hope you're sh- super excited. You voted on these. You're the ones. If you're not happy with the placement, you only have yourselves to blame. I, I say that every single time, but it, uh, really, this is, this is a fine list. I'm very very happy with the way most of these votes uh, played out. Um, so before we get into the uh, official top fifty proper, this is the only episode in which I will do this. I figured it would be nice to mention just three or four uh, that made the top hundred. We will list the entire hundred. We'll put it up on Letterboxd and share it to the Facebook page, but just three or four little standouts that made the top hundred that we won't specifically be talking about elsewhere. Um, Peter Jackson's, I don't know if it was his debut, but it was one of his early's. The horror film Bad Taste landed in at number a hundred, which just delighted me. I thought that was funny and appropriate. Um, uh, Blake is going to be somewhat disappointed to know that his Beloved, the Hitcher landed at 84. So, not a lot, not a ton of love uh, for the Hitcher. Yeah, womp womp. But then also a favorite film of mine, uh, a favorite film and horror film of mine, and if you've not seen this film, please seek it out and check it out. It is well worth your time. Uh, it's called Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. It is a made-for-TV film. Sounds cheesy, has a bit of a cheesy cover, but it is exceptional, and it landed in at number 56. Didn't quite make the top uh, 50. Um, and then the last one that I'll mention is uh is at number 51, Michael Mann's film, Manhunter, which uh, is the first film appearance of the character Hannibal Lecter, played at that point by Brian Cox rather than uh, by Anthony Hopkins, but uh, that landed in at number 51, just barely getting eked out of the top 50. So just a few standouts from the overall 100. Again, we will be publishing at the end of the month so that nothing gets spoiled. We will be publishing the full list of 100 that you voted on, you placed them there, um, and we're we are very, very excited. But do you want to go ahead and dive into the, the, the numbers 50 through 41? You want to go ahead and, and reveal for all of our listeners I, right now what those are? I,
1: I do, Reed. D-
0: do you? All right. All right. Well, I, don't, I don't know. I got to
1: be honest, Reed. I love the
0: 80s. <laughs> Hashtag. Um, okay, so <laughs> we're going to go ahead and start with number, number 50. Landing in at number 50 was the Stephen King directed, the only film he ever directed, uh, Maximum Overdrive. Have you seen this film?
1: I have not seen this film, though I do want to go ahead and register it as a candidate for QK5. (laughs)
0: <laughs> i don't know man because it is
1: <laughs> uh,
0: let, let us just say that his strengths are in writing not necessarily in directing but it's it's pros a little bit writing, more of a cult. Yes, yes yes uh it's a little bit more of a uh, at this point of a uh, sort of a cult classic than anything else but yes stephen king's directed maximum overdrive came in at number 50 what was number 49 nathan rouse
1: well speaking of cult classics and both those words in this instance starting with a k we have at number 49, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. That movie that everyone will cite as the reason they hate clowns. <laughs> um, directed by Steven Chato, it is wacky and it is zany, according to Reed. And uh, it it, like, again, it is more of a cult classic than anything else. Reed, I have like, I, I have no idea how this movie begins or ends. But I do have recollection of seeing footage of this as a young person at a friend from Alameda's house. Because that's what you did, was you watched the movies you weren't allowed to watch at home in other people's houses. That's true. And it just terrified me. So,
0: yes, yeah. I mean, it's it's got some I mean, they're creepy looking clowns. They're killer clowns, to be specific. Um, yeah, it's it's super silly, but it does have its charm. It does have its appeal. And clearly our listeners agree because it came in at number forty nine. So uh, moving right along, we're going to clip along with these so that we can get to the meat of today's episode. Number forty eight, uh, a film I really, if I'm being honest, wished had uh shown higher. I don't think there's a lot of people who have seen this film. If you haven't seen this film, like, seek it out. Maybe we'll do an episode about it and kind of drive people to it. But number 48 is Pumpkinhead. It was directed by special effects legend Stan Winston. He didn't direct very much. Uh, he only directed two features, and this was his very first one. It features what I consider personally consider to be the greatest best and possibly scariest creature design in all of horror film history but it's also a surprisingly like substantial film about revenge and uh you know it's it's got some great things i'll save all of that for hopefully when we eventually do an episode about it but number 48 Pumpkinhead, starring lance Henriksen and directed by stan winston
1: did you say starring lance Henriksen? interesting
0: Yes, starring uh, Lance Henriksen.
1: Mm -hmm. uh, What was the name of that Chris Carter TV show? Millennium, Millennium, yes. That guy. Um, Which also, he crossed over into the X-Files. So, (laughs) (laughs) X-Files. So, number 47 is Silver Bullet, directed by Daniel. I'm going to butcher his name, but think it might be Atias or Atias. Uh, But it is based on uh, old Uncle Stevie's book, Cycle of the Werewolf, um, starring Corey Haim, the infamous Gary Busey, Terry O'Quinn, aka John Locke, bingo, and <laughs> Megan follows. Yes, uh, one of those other seminal '80s icons, and Shirley. I do need now to see this. Out. <laughs> is this a good movie? Is this a good? Is this worth watching? Read
0: this. Is a, I love it. I love it. Honestly, like uh, I mean, it's it's got some cheesiness to it, but I really think it's a great movie. Like honestly, we won't spend a ton of time on it right now. It's another one that maybe f- would qualify for a QK uh, at some point in the future. But uh, no, I love Silver Bullet. Silver Bullet's a favorite werewolf movie of mine, and I really, I really enjoy it. So yeah, I would, I would highly recommend it personally. I would. Interesting. Um, and right. you know, number forty-seven. It's it's got a strong showing. Okay, so number 46, um, another Stephen King property. You're going to see Stephen King adaptations show up a lot in these top 80s films. Um, but number 46 is Firestarter, directed by Mark Lester, again, based on Stephen King's novel of the same name. Um, it stars Drew Barrymore back in her young E.T. days, Heather Locklear, Martin Sheen, and... George C. Scott. Now, I have to make a comment here. He is playing a Native American, which is like just the textbook definition of terrible whitewashing, but he delivers a fantastic performance. He's the main villain in it, and uh, and he is chilling as always. And I actually have a lot of affection for Firestarter. Some of the performances are, are stilted, hit or miss, but overall, I like it. I would say, since we just recently commented on it, I'd say if you're trying to choose between seeking out Firestarter or Silver Bullet, I would prefer Silver Bullet. But clearly, listeners just barely prefer Firestarter because it came in at number 46 so so yes uh fire by stephen king
1: well number 45 totally unrelated to stephen king is the monster squad oh my uh, god by fred directed by fred decker not to be confused with christian author ted decker um, <laughs> think the goonies meets universal monsters so you've got characters like dracula frankenstein's monster the wolfman the mummy um the creature from the black lagoon just walking around going after this after that um, but all of them in uh, in concert must be stopped by adventurous adolescents. Um, it sounds like a romp, Reed.
0: Dude, this movie is so fantastic. My wife and I bonded yeah. in one of our first like when we were kind of are we going to date? Is that what you call date? it? Wow. Yes. Um, <laughs> in in one of our. First conversations where we were kind of like, are we going to date or are we not going to date? We bonded over the fact that she owned Monster Squad on beta. And uh, yes, Monster Squad is a fantastically fun, uh, wonderful 80s film. If you have not seen Monster Squad uh, and it's relatively palatable, it's got some language, but if it's relatively clean and palatable. If you're looking for something that's not going to be too extreme, uh, wanting a fun 80s horror film, uh, definitely seek out Monster Squad. It is worth your time. Um, so number 44, um, the first entry in what will be a handful of uh, franchise entries in this list, uh, number 44 is Friday the 13th Part 6, subtitled Jason Lives. It is directed by Tom McLaughlin. Now, this is a really fun, this is my personal favorite of the Friday the 13th sequels, um, featuring a fantastic Closing credits song by Alice Cooper called The Man Behind the Mask. Um, it is, it, in my opinion, it's kind of the first time that the Friday the 13th sequels, which had mostly been rather earnest, sort of dived whole hog into their campiness factor. Um, but Jason Lives is a very, very fun. Uh, I, I, If you're just looking for a classic slasher, I would highly recommend uh, Jason Lives. Uh, yeah, I, I like it a lot. It's, I mean, it's silly and cheesy in many, many ways, but I think it's great. I love Jason Lives.
1: Awesome. Well, it loves you, too, because on number 43 is The Changeling, directed by Peter Medek? Uh also starring George C. Scott. As another Native American, this is really where George Scott had this (laughs) run of roles in the '80s, (laughs) just totally not representation era. He's Um, not a Native American American at all. He really (laughs) isn't either, even the other movie. Um, But it is kind of a classical ghost story. It's pretty underrated. I think you like this film. Oh, this is a personal.
0: Yeah, no, this is a personal favorite of mine, horror or or otherwise. I'm going to say this frequently in this list, um, but maybe at the end I will put some like more two or three solid recommendations. If you are a horror movie fan and have not seen The Changeling, oh my goodness gracious, seek out The Changeling as fast as you possibly can. It's a wonderful, wonderful, excellent movie. George C. Scott is tremendous in it. Great classical thrills and scares. Um, A wonderful mystery story at its base. Um, An excellent, excellent movie that I can't recommend enough. I love The Changeling. So yeah, yeah, go seek it out. Um, Number 42, another movie that I deeply, deeply love. um, Directed by Richard Franklin, it is Psycho... Two, the sequel to Alfred Hitchcock's seminal classic that we covered as our hundredth episode. It features Anthony Perkins reprising his role as Norman Bates, as well as Vera miles returning in her role as Marion Crane's sister, Lila. Um, I do love this film. I mentioned quite a bit about it in our psycho episode, but uh, yeah, I do. I mean, it obviously doesn't hold up to the original, but in its own right, I find it very, very entertaining and I enjoy it quite a bit.
1: Last on our list guys of the top 50 through 41 is the blob. Directed by Chuck yeah. Russell, who also directed The Mask and Nightmare on Elm Street 3. I don't mean this to be a stupid question read. Is this The Mask? This is not the Jim Carrey. The that mask
0: is the movie. Jim Carrey. The yes. Yeah. Be- no, no, no. Oh, no. Okay, that is, cool. yeah, Chuck Russell directed um, Jim Carrey in The Mask.
1: Okay. Uh, this movie, though, is a remake, right? Of <laughs> Yes, the so 50s? the
0: yeah, the original was in, I forget what, what year in the 50s, but it starred Steve McQueen. It was kind of a schlock, sort of drive-in classic at that time. This version has bigger and bolder special effects, but um, it's been some years since I've seen it, but I remember it to be pretty effective and uh, pretty fun, too. Uh, I actually really have a lot of affection for the remake of The Blob. I do prefer the 50s original, but I do think that the 80s one is pretty strong, and listeners clearly do, too, because they voted it in at number 41. So, yes quite a bit quite a bit of love that brings us to the conclusion of this week's installment of your top 50 countdown of hashtag I love the 80s I want to just in closing throw uh, two solid well three solid recommendations out if you're seeking fun 80s horror films this October uh, then number one with a bullet please seek out the changeling I think the monster squad is also very worth your time and if you're looking for something a little Stephen King that's not too extreme check out silver bullet all all three of those are great. Um, so yeah, that was that was this week's countdown list. Um, stay tuned next week for your number forty through thirty-one. But that is not what we're talking about this week, Nathan. What we're talking not. about this week is a film that made the top ten. And uh, there's a little bit of fear of God uh, history with this film. Just in brief peek behind the curtain when we were doing our march down the Universal Monsters series. There was uh, quite a bit of debate about whether, as a companion film to The Wolfman, we would choose The Howling, also from the 80s, or if we would choose this film, the John Landis-directed American Werewolf in London. And uh, at that time, through some discussion that's probably not worth getting into, uh, The Howling uh one at that time and i knew there was eventually going to be a time that we were going to cover an american werewolf in, per- uh, in london and i'm so so excited that that time has arrived so uh so nathan Great. was this your first time seeing this
1: it absolutely was my friend what would you think i i enjoyed it i really i um i really like the experience uh now i'm going to i'm going to preface this so there's what can happen when you're watching a piece of media you know tv movie what have you a second time and the different levels you're able to plug in on it on repeat viewings that is fruitful and makes finding thematic layers more uh rich Um, so there's that version of consuming art well then there's this version which is also equally fun sometimes leaves you a little unsure like thematically because you know, you're kind of finding your bearings on just what exactly you're sort of experiencing, but is nonetheless fun as well. Which is to simply have no clue what you're getting yourself into, other than the title <laughs> of the thing is an American Werewolf in London. So I really didn't know. I didn't watch a trailer. I didn't read anything. I mean, the title is pretty on the nose, but sure. Um, so you've got you've got some some narrative uh, uh, a narrative spine to sort of work with here. You kind of have an idea of what you're getting into just narratively, but. Beyond that, I didn't know anything about it, so I was kind of pleasantly surprised by its mix of kind of comedy yes. and earnestness. Um, so, I, and and that was kind of cool because I just I, I really had no clue that that was a component of the film. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Now, I mean, have you seen this like many times or just a few? Uh,
0: you know what? This was probably my third or fourth viewing. I haven't seen this multiple. Well, let me ask times, you this because
1: but... you just you just you just referenced the howling sort of thing. What? at the time of Choosing the Howling, prompted you to pick that over this. Um,
0: Because I felt like the as a companion film to The Wolfman, um, I felt like American Werewolf in London at the time, and maybe that wouldn't have been true, but I felt like a lot of the themes we would draw out from the Wolfman would be, would have been redundant to pick an American Werewolf in London. Whereas okay. the Howling had some different elements. The Howling was you know and the Howling was released the same year. These all came out in eighty one. American Werewolf in London, The Howling, and another werewolf film called Wolf'en, which is far and away the lesser of those three. I consider American Werewolf in London to be the best of the bunch. Howling, I really have a lot of affection for. I think it's a lesser film than this one, but I still like The Howling quite a bit. And uh, and Wolfen is barely watchable in my opinion but they all came out in 1981 and the howling really digs into as we mentioned on our episode of it how these the people in that film kind of want to be werewolves um and so that was you know digging into those differences there i thought would be substantive for the time but uh but yeah so now this brings us no, to, no, that, that does, to this one
1: yeah that does make sense in hindsight um no but yeah i i, I enjoyed it I did in reading some backstory on it, find a couple of interesting uh trivial bits,
0: oh nice, yes, please, by ideas. all means
1: yes, um one, the financiers believed that the script was too frightening to be a comedy and too funny to be horror, mm-hmm. which is just always you know it's just always fascinating when kind of art does this that that just tries to bridge some gaps, and where where art meets kind of the commerce side of the sure, industry. Right, you know, right, right. Like, well, you can't market it if it's not horror to, you know, more horror. You can't market it to the comedy people. Anyway, it's just kind of interesting that that was a hang up, um, which does make a little sense. I mean, it is not jarring in a way that's off-putting,
0: but if sure, you, like sure. I
1: did, like I did, if you have no clue that that's the tone, it takes you a minute to kind of calibrate to that. Like, oh, these guys are... Are funny and their their they're, right. their banter right. is is light and and frothy and comedic in a way that I didn't expect. So no, so I agree. Was kind of a, a fun experience to have. Uh, the other big sort of trivial bit that I would probably imagine you're aware of is that the one and only king of pop, Michael Jackson,
0: yes, was oh yes,
1: a, a huge fan of this, and thus chose Landis to direct and make up effects guy rick baker for thriller
0: absolutely um, yes directly because is, of this film yes yeah
1: well, well once you read that you're like oh yeah i totally see that completely and makes perfect sense but it was just it was one of those fun little bits of trivia to trip over and realize oh my gosh this was kind of staring you in the face for 30 years and would have never known that that's exactly kind of <laughs> connective tissue there
0: Sure, absolutely. Well, and speaking a moment for about legendary effects uh, artist Rick Baker, um, so his work in this is stunning it is absolutely staggering specifically that transformation sequence which we'll get into a little later but it was so impressive as a matter of fact that uh this the the generation of this is somewhat apocryphal um there's a bit of uh argument to be had about whether or not the academy was going to honor this work anyway or if they created the category of best makeup because of American Werewolf in London. So there's some debate about whether or not the Academy was going to do that anyway, or if they created the category specifically for American Werewolf in London. But regardless of that, it is not in dispute that the very first created Oscar of Best Makeup went to Rick Baker for an American Werewolf in London, because largely because of that transformation sequence. Right.
1: Well, it's funny you say that, so, and I didn't transcribe this, so I'm not going to do a great job of remembering it. It's, uh finer details of it but landis in subsequent years has conveyed and regret might be too strong a word but apparently the edit underwent a lot of changes just Mm. over time before they had a final edit locked and specifically he he has conveyed sort of wishing that he had not lingered on the transformation so long in Mm. the actual cut of the film not because it isn't worthy of celebration but because he's he actually I think what he was trying to say is like I even got lost in it mm. to perhaps the the narrative disruption uh. that- might not should have been. It's just kind of an interesting observation.
0: See, that's so funny because I have the exact opposite effect. To me, that transformation sequence is like the hinge point of the film. Now, it, it happens an hour in, so it doesn't happen until two-thirds into the film, but to me, it all kind of hinges on that transformation sequence. Like, that. the, the entire first two-thirds of the movie, they are debating about, well, is he this thing or is he not his thing? What you know? Sure. What is he? And so, when he begins to transform, in my mind, I actually think that the length is appropriate, or I wouldn't mind it going maybe 30 seconds to another minute longer because it really is this to the effect on me as a viewer is that this is a a disruptive horrific um, uh, yeah I mean it you experience the transformation with him right down to the the bulging back the extension of the hand you know the the popping right, out right. of the face which oh my dear lord you know like all of those effects which the reason that he got the Oscar and it, it's so alarming is so much of it Looks very authentic. It's all practically done. No computer effects. Every inch of it is practical, and it looks staggering. And so because of that, yeah. um, there's there. I, I, yeah, I mean, it's it's utterly engrossing. I'm I'm actually surprised to hear that anybody would look at that and think that it that it could have been trimmed down because I almost I almost want the scene to, to keep going. It's a fascinating scene to study. It's a fascinating scene to experience, especially if you're watching the film for the first time. I love love that transformation scene.
1: No, I, I think your observations are appropriate. Yeah, it was just, it was, and, and, you know, I, I'm not interested in, in traipsing off the road deep into the moors to have a <laughs> conversation about it, but I can sort of see the point he's making, mm. but I also think you're absolutely right. Yeah. So we can, we can move on from there. I just thought that was a really interesting. Uh,
0: sure. Sure. To wait yeah.
1: There, did you have any bits you'd like to trivialize for all of us?
0: No, the main, the main one I wanted to mention was the, the Oscar creation. Um, and I definitely think you know as a as a first piece of Oscar recognition, yeah American werewolf in London's transformation <laughs> sequence is pretty stunning and and pretty impressive It's the kind of thing that you could look at and say, uh, yes, of course you want to laud this as an achievement in film because this is unbelievable I mean it's staggering what he was able to do so uh, so yeah that's yeah that's about that's about the extent of that.
1: I've got just a long list here of likes dislikes um,
0: sure. Let me because have it.
1: I yeah, I did find a general state of just enjoyability about the movie, and that was fun to experience. Um, <laughs> just just throwing out random stuff. <laughs> I love... It had echoes for me of a, a, another piece of media I'll, I'll reference here, but I love in the Slaughtered Lamb pub when
0: I don't have the character names in front of me. David and... David and Jack. The two of them? Okay. Yeah, the two main ones.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but David's the one who... Di- no, David's the one who survives?
0: Yes, Jack dies, remember. David becomes the, the uh, werewolf. Yep. Yep.
1: When they're sitting in the Slaughtered Lamb and one of them they see the pentagram on the wall and there's this, you know, the the, the, the Slaughtered Lamb pub is just uh, overflowing with hubbub and, you know, chattering patrons and all that sort of stuff and, and he says, what's that star on the wall for? And it's like you hear the record stop and it... <laughs> yeah. it And who knows? Maybe it was a nod too, though I doubt it. Unlike in uh, Psycho, this will make sense in a second. It had total and absolute echoes of uh, Large Marge sent me (laughs) Pee Wee's Big Adventure. (laughs) Like, you know, you enter this locale where there's of uh, 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 the, the local watering hole and everybody's yes. chatting and having a good time and the character says that one thing <laughs> they shouldn't say and just everybody if, stops
0: you made and in uh, this film he's all like you made me miss a don't. Yeah yeah, 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 it's it's awesome. No, I'm sure that I mean I'm now. Well, I'm large, Marge, sent you. I now want to, with all of our conversations about horror film, and maybe it's quite appropriate that in our very first debut episode, you mentioned Pee Wee's Big Adventure because I'm now wanting to go back and watch that film. I, do, in, I said
1: that on episode one, Fair of, of God.
0: Yes, you sure did. Um, and so I really want to go. In back. what
1: context? I mean, I, I use it in a lot of contexts. but I don't know exactly what it would have been. I said,
0: well, I said the my it was I was citing my very favorite horror film of all time, and you said and you jumped in with Pee Wee's Big Adventure and so (laughs) and and so I was like that's more that sounds right yeah 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 (laughs) <laughs> like, that sounds like something I'd do. Um, yeah, but I now want to go back and watch that movie in light of all these references, you know, because I'm yeah. like, oh, it's yeah. pr- probably to pop up all over the place, um, especially directed by Burton. But no, that I mean, that whole sequence is, is really strong. <laughs> I love like the Slaughtered Lamb residents are just very difficult for me to figure out because they see they simultaneously seem very like. Okay, we're we're just gonna leave this alone. There's a wolf out there, and we're just not gonna talk about it. And then also feel very responsible for the people that they let yeah. leave and just go wander yeah. out on the moors. It's just weird. I can't quite peg their motivations. Like they're desperate to say something, and they're also desperate to keep it secret. I I just don't know. Um, they're they're an odd bunch. Those slaughtered lamb uh, patrons.
1: Well, in the American Werewolf shared universe, there's a whole sidebar story about the Slaughtered Lamb pub patrons that that's a whole movie of just it's it's kind of like a my dinner with andre at the slaughtered <laughs> lamb but the end of the movie is jack and david walking in like that's, <laughs> that's just how it ends
0: <laughs> yes let's watch let's watch that film <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but that slow saunter over with, to the typewriter
1: with back, background sounds of howling yeah um (laughs) so i i I love just writing down lines um is alex is that the name of the nurse
0: uh yes alex is the name no 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 no. alex is the name of the nurse yeah Nurse alex price
1: i i don't know maybe the 80s were different maybe london in the 80s were different (laughs) i did see austin powers maybe this is a carryover from that era um i love the line when she takes him back to the apartment and she just goes (laughs) I I've had seven lovers three were one night stands and like, that's meant as like a, a, some sort of weird come on or like, you know, like it just, that seems like a high ratio, you yes. know, like if you've had, I mean, you know, you and I come from a faith background. So seven lovers seems like a, an unconscionably high number already, but, um, <laughs> but much less when almost half of them are one night stands, you know, like, is she saying to him like, okay, you're going to be number eight are you going to be another one night stand or he not? You know proud. what I mean? It's like, what is she trying to convey oh with that gosh. statement? I just don't know. It just oh struck me gosh. as a really funny bit of information to share with. Sure. Someone about to sleep with.
0: Well, and it reminds me of like, we commented on in John Carpenter's the fog when all of a sudden, like the, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis is, is picked up uh, by that <laughs> right. driver and they like exchange. They, they don't even exchange names. They're just like, nope. you're weird. I'm weird too. All right, let's do this. <laughs>
1: Right, yeah. So, Let's make it happen. That it's the is '80s, so, free
0: love. That was so not my I, '80s experience. So anyway, but uh,
1: <laughs> I would really hope not, because that is a totally different real life story that oh I just don't gosh. want to have happened to you. Me either. Me Ooh, either. I want to see you playing with your masters of the universe, <laughs> and <laughs> and that is about it. Um, so I love, I love. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, have, I have no comments um, i have
0: no comments yeah
1: that's all right that's all right it's probably for the best um i do love the soundtrack i love all the oh
0: it's great the, yes the tracks
1: they use um
0: and every single I one of them has uh has a the word moon in the title a
1: moon reference
0: yeah. yeah Yep, they do i love it well I that
1: to... well that wasn't subtle Reed, but i appreciate you sharing you know, pointing that out
0: wow <laughs> wow it's
1: um, gonna be that yeah no it's all right it's
0: that all right. tone of conversation
1: <laughs> sorry sorry um i love ben the little indian boy who only says no like it just reminded me of being <laughs> a parent in my child right now who literally <laughs> is like no 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 <laughs> a, a little jerk um so let's talk about the transformation real quick for me personally yes unlike the howling i maybe maybe i'm just desensitized at, at 106 episodes of the fear of god but I didn't find it visually kind of gross at all. Like, uh, um, Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of the, a lot of kind of moments like this that are just, you know, I'm trying to think of other examples where visual effects just take hold in old horror movies. And it's just really disgusting. Oh, the fly, you know, sure. these, yeah, these yeah, transformative groundbreaking landmark effects moments in horror movies that, can be, because of the nature of the effect, very disgusting. Sure, um, I found this one just more kind of fascinating to watch and less, like, visually gross. Um, sure. Which yeah, I, yeah, which I think is kind of a credit to it, even unlike the howling. I actually, to my remembrance, I find the howling transformation actually kind of gross, if I'm remembering correctly.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I wouldn't disagree. I wouldn't disagree. And and no, I, I'm kind of with you. I, so part of my experience of watching the transformation sequence is not repulsion, but is actually just fascination. I think there's a tremendous right. interest in watching how he is m- morphing into this wolf like creature. And I think part of that is it is this odd mix of like sometimes when you can so blatantly tell that a thing is a fabrication of makeup. It can take you out of it. It can make you feel like, oh, well, that's that's so clearly, you know, a contraption. But this very much had the effect on me that watching great illusionists has on me where it's like, you know, an illusionist does the trick. You know, it's a trick. You can't see quite how they did it. And because you can't see quite how they did it, you just kind of buy into the illusion of it. And that's my experience of the transformation where it's like, yeah, I know this is a fabricated effect, But it is so well done and so uh, effectively rendered that I just get lost in it. And again, it's just fascinating to watch. Huge kudos, though, to that actor. Let me pull up his name so I don't say it wrong uh, to David Naughton for selling that moment. I think half of the strength, well, let me go ahead and say two thirds of the strength of that is Rick Baker's staggering makeup effects work. But then also. And then half of it is the performance. (laughs) Because I can't do math. (laughs) So. But at least two thirds is the makeup effect, and then at least a third is David Naughton's fully committed performance. Cause he is just, he's, he's yeah. Yeah. really commits. To the the pain of it, the agony of it, the, he himself is fascinated. He's staring at parts of himself that are transforming. And um, and so he. I think without those two components in cooperation, it would not be as effective as it is. But thankfully, both of those are at an A-plus level. And so it really winds up being a really effective scene, a really effective moment. All right.
1: Well, let's talk about this wolf for a minute because I want to. I'm going to, I'm going to get nitpicky here. So, all right, one, one, and I'm slightly joking here though, though. Also, I'm I'm like two thirds joking, one half, not joking. Um, I think (laughs) as much as I love the, (laughs) as much as I love the transformation sequence, I feel like the post transformation scene execution of the wolf, I'm not going to say it's bad, but it's so like not the same level at all. Yeah,
0: I know, I get it. And
1: and so you've got this latter film, Wolf Shaggy Dog. You know, <laughs> it's like it's like the Shaggy Da, right? Um, but I just love, and this is just you—you you know me, listeners know me enough at this point that these things just fascinate me. The, the little moments in movies that we that go unseen, like how did Shaggy Dog Werewolf? get out of her apartment without damaging anything like (laughs) he is very like studious. Like he doesn't sure, damage sure. anything in his transformation. Nothing gets knocked over because they are, she and the doctor are clearly baffled as to his whereabouts have no clue that he may actually like, there's no hair anywhere. Like, did he relock the door when he left? Like what <laughs> do they, well, I mean, I guess that begs the question of, do they even lock their doors? Well, they must lock the door because he gets locked out because he climbs. Yeah. Yes. See, yeah, of this yeah. is, these are the things that keep me up at night. Read is <laughs> how did the American shaggy dog in London get, out of the apartment and, like, and and just make his way unseen
0: afterwards. Like, well, it's easy. It's it, it's easy. He went through the doggy door.
1: Oh. Like, mm. <laughs> mm. no, no, it's you're like, try. no. <laughs> I've had seven. I've had seven lovers. Three of them were one night stands.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they left by the doggy door. So yeah,
1: that fa- that fascinates me to ponder. <laughs> Uh, I do think in any sort of situation of peril or alarm that I find myself in the future, I'm now going to use as my statement of alarm um, is, "Okay, I can assure you this is not in the least bit amusing. <laughs> that's, what I, that's just what I'm going to say when, okay. I'm, okay. when I'm worried about my state of being. I mean, I can assure you this is not in the least bit amusing. So I thought that's yes. a fun moment. you know, I, you know, you know I'm about it at all
0: Oh yeah it's where the guy comes out the back and he thinks that his friends are just playing a trick on him and are you t- that that moment where he's like holding a No brain no that's, in his this hand. is
1: this is no no this is actually the subway patron I actually really like the sequence when the shaggy dog is tracking <laughs> the subway guy
0: <laughs> Oh yes yes oh my gosh Yeah so yes. you got
1: no, you got right. the very very British subway patron <laughs> And he's being tracked and he's like, I can assure you, this is not in the least bit amusing." music. <laughs> you know,
0: they're all they're all very, very British. I mean, it is an American <laughs> they, werewolf no. in London, in London,
1: London, England.
0: <laughs> um,
1: so I just I really love that. That's what I'm going to start saying when I'm scared <laughs> um, that someone's out to get me. I affirm um, you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love the running through the z the zoo sequence and thought this movie could be retitled an American Wiener in London. Oh my um, God! So- cannot- <laughs> yes, you can.
0: Um, <laughs> the initials actually don't change. They exactly. Don't change. Exactly. It's, you it's found great. the joke. You uh, found it. It's wow. uh,
1: there's it's like it's like it's like two jokes in one. <laughs> oh my God. Are, no. <laughs> oh, I'm dear. too much I know um, too much. so two actual not joking um, comments that I want to make and then we can move on or you can say because you're just I pre- you're a good friend Reed you just uh, yeah, let me just kind of walk walk down the hall of life um yes,
0: yes go right ahead you are
1: you are <laughs> um, I do love the conceit of Jack's worsening appearance um, so oh, yes yes that last, last week's movie was pretty self-explanatory. Um, this one, Jack and David are friends who are backpack American friends who are backpacking through the British countryside. Um, one gets killed by a werewolf, that one who gets killed. And I'm now going to interpose them unintentionally. So I'm not going to say their names again, but mm-hmm. the one who gets killed starts showing up intermittently to the one who survives. And every time the deceased one shows up, he has this progressively more decayed appearance to him. And it's a really good effect. It's a really strong conceit and it's executed very well. Um, So I loved that. The last thing I'm going to comment on, on my likes, dislikes, and I actually have it as a love. Okay. I'll say it as a love and a dislike because I dislike they don't do more with it. I loved the Nazi wolf dream sequence.
0: Oh, um, yes, 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 I think yes, it's yes.
1: a very powerful sequence visually. I think it's strong, just like impact, impact wise. Yeah, of um, course, of course. You know, and, and I, and I just kind of wish they had done, I, I'm not even saying repeat that aesthetic or repeat that convention. I just mean, it was such a, sort of like the transformation, the transformation is so strong when it happens that maybe do they not revisit or regain that strength of visual again? Same kind of thing here. It's such a potent sequence that I just was like, oh, man, I would have liked something else like that again.
0: Well, and I think that's one thing you could ding the film on as a whole. There's a lot to love about this film. But I do think there's a way that if somebody, and I think some critics have, if somebody were to say that it is less a cohesive film and more a sequence of impactful moments or more just sort of like segments that kind of work together they kind of thread together I wouldn't really argue very much with somebody who saw the film that way I think the film has easily um, half a dozen to ten very effective moments individual moments that I'm like oh my gosh you have got to see this moment like that Nazi dream sequence like the transformation um, actually his entire sort of rundown of dream sequences are great uh, them wandering the moors while they're kind of being sort of uh, hunted and stalked by the wolf um, the moments in the slaughtered lamb uh, the I mean I think there's so many things to praise about the film but there's very little that I think the film really latches its teeth into forgive the pun um that it feels to feel cohesive once you conclude the film it just does ultimately feel like a sequence is a sequence of very compelling but admittedly somewhat disjointed moments um so if somebody did walk away from this film feeling more like that again i wouldn't argue with them but i also don't think it hinders the ultimate enjoyment of the film either
1: and perfectly illustrating your point is just how abrupt the ending is
0: yes Uh, it it just sort of stops right yeah yeah
1: yeah well that's that's kind of my
0: uh I have two things. Um yeah. So in likes dislikes, so I really enjoy again they don't do more with him, but I really enjoy the sort of bumbling inspector who, you know, like he's sometimes quite right and and just keeps getting shot down by his superior <laughs> and and I just oh, love yeah, how yeah, yeah. It, it's almost this sort of sort of like a like a comedy dude. kind of reminded of me bit. like a
1: John C. Riley. Kind of character.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. He keeps speaking up. And sometimes when he speaks up, he actually, oh, yeah. s- you know, yeah. says uh, something that's, that's appropriate thing. and right. Yes. Um, but just keeps getting shot down by the other, you know, quote unquote, smarter member of Scotland Yard. So I like that. I, I referenced it in my entrance into the episode. But did you catch uh, the in, that the insurance uh, you would have known if you were attuned to the voice? Um, because it is a very distinct voice. But the insurance director who comes in and, and talks to uh, David as he's recovering in the hospital. And he kind of goes into hysterics when he wakes up from the hospital. But that is yeah. that is Frank Oz. That is the voice of Miss Piggy That's and funny. Fozzie yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and all the rest of I remember
1: of them. in the cr- opening credits seeing his name. But I don't know. I, I mean, especially don't then. But I didn't know what he looked like. Sure. And now that you say that, yes, that does ring.
0: Sure, sure. Yes. Um his little cameo there. And again, if you if you weren't And did
1: you say Yoda? I mean
0: Yoda. Oh, Yoda. That's... Yeah, no, I didn't mention Yoda, Yoda, but yes, he's he's the voice of Yoda and and you he's not putting an affectation on his voice, but his voice is so distinct in and of itself that right. if you just listen to him talk, you can be like, "Oh man, that sounds very much like these characters well." It's because it's Especially the voice. Especially that moment
1: when he's like, "Hmm." Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, you can't. No, I can't take you anywhere. Um, I can't, you can't. take you. I can't take you to London,
1: London no. Paris. Oh my gosh, You know. Oh my god! through
0: Um. But then uh, the other thing, the other thing that I, I'll be honest with you, man, I just don't quite know how I feel about it. This is not a transition to themes, because I didn't really latch onto it very much. But the perpetual tableau, maybe it is probably, you know, a thematic note, although I don't know much what to say about it. But it it really stuck out to me this time, just the perpetual onslaught of how the undead want him to kill himself. (laughs) <laughs> it's just that whole sequence. Oh, that, and the,
1: that is literally my only theme here. Okay. All right. Yeah, so, we'll so,
0: so, so we'll get to that, but that is uh, maybe I'll talk more about my feelings about that when we actually get there. Cause I was like, yeah, so th- that, that moment, uh, stuck out to me, but that's, that's it for my, uh, likes, dislikes, mentionables as it were.
1: Um, what about your unmentionables? <laughs> wow. Um, wow. So as far as scares go, um, I re- the only thing I wrote down is just the dream within a dream. Um, yeah,
0: that's, that's a great moment. Yeah, it's a really great moment.
1: Um, I dreamed a dream of time gone by.
0: <laughs> I would cite the you know, I would cite the transformation. We've already talked at length about it. I would cite the transformation on my list and uh, and there's a there's a couple of nice little jump scares, but I, I do think to the point of whoever said it might be too funny for horror, I think a lot of the scare factor in it is somewhat undercut by the comedic tone that pervades the you know, the, the film. Um, so, but yeah.
1: Well, and to your point, like the big carnage in Piccadilly circus <laughs> towards the end. No, that's the name
0: of it. I know. Um, I know. It's just funny. Okay.
1: okay. I mean, like I, I, I know when I'm joking and I'm
0: not joking. Right <laughs> <now
1: either>.
0: um, <laughs> I just think it's funny to hear you say Piccadilly.
1: Yeah. Circus. Um, but the, the carnage there is so intense that, yeah, you're like, I, Am I supposed to be like amused by this? Right, you know, right, like, right, because right, right. um, I can assure you, this is not in the least <laughs> bit amusing.
0: <of> <laughs> That's perfect. That's a perfect callback. Yeah. That's a great segue. <laughs> Do that. So Do that again.
1: I did it. <laughs> I did it. Um, so yeah, the the dream within a dream was really great, and Piccadillys are great. Um, so <laughs> themes. Yes. Um, I'll go direct directly to where Please you do. were yes. and, and name the theme. So I did find, and I'm glad, I'm glad I asked you about the howling previous, uh, you know, the previous use of the howling. Cause I do think there's a way in which partnering this with Wolfman would have been redundant uh, one week to the next. But sure. What I do think is fascinating about this. I think even for what might feel like a little wonky execution of American werewolf, it does a better job with some of the thematic elements. Wolfman just kind of lightly touches. Sure. At best, best illustrated in that scene. So, mm-hmm. um, listeners who aren't going to watch this movie, I reference the character who died. That's, that's Jack, Jack, so Jack, Jack. The, fr- the the, the, friend who gets eaten early in the movie or, or killed by a werewolf early in the movie, um, that re- reappears multiple times. When he appears to David, he basically says, "I am," and and he does, I don't think he uses this word, but he basically conveys he's in a purgatory type state. Yeah, um, and he can't he can't move on until David, now a werewolf, is killed or kills himself. Either maybe? one,
0: yes, until he's dead. Okay. Okay. Yes. yes.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um. Well, so that culminates David at the last. You know, kind of four fifths through the movie. Why is he going there? I can't remember. He
0: gets summoned there by Jack, so he's just around. He's just around town, and then he sees a vision of Jack calling him into that theater. Okay, so he, okay. so he follows Jack into that theater. So I he, think it's, I think it's called "See You Next Wednesday" or something. It's, it's an adult movie theater, but I, I think, right. I think it's called I "See mean, You Next Wednesday" or something.
1: I mean, Pee Wee's Big adventures already been referenced once. You know, <laughs> so. um,
0: Wow. So yeah,
1: Jack summons David. I was thinking adult movie theater.
0: No, um, I got it. I got it. Okay. I'm just, well, I'm yeah. just, I'm just wowing I figured
1: you. I figured you would. Why? Do, um. Wow. <laughs> I
0: don't know, I listeners, I don't know uh, what no, you think of me a,
1: anymore. This is a raucous episode. <laughs> R- Read.
0: <laughs> I think we need to talk offline about your perception. I, <laughs> my, <laughs> no, I no. love
1: you dearly. This is, I'm just, I'm just. You know, I'm just here and enjoying the movie. Um, And I'm going to make a hard pivot right now and towards deep things. All right. Um, Because that's that's what we do. It kind of is. Um, So then what happens, again, if you've not watched this movie, what happens is in this movie theater, which as Reed just alluded to, is an adult movie theater. There's a pornographic film on the screen, on the movie screen. But then the film, David is sitting in the theater and Jack, who is at this point, just this desiccated it's, it's a little cheesy, but it's a pretty cool effect. You kind of have to buy it. Cause it's 1981. Um, this, he, he is just this corpse and he's talking to David about, you have to kill yourself. Well, then sitting alongside David appears the other victims yeah. of David as a werewolf throughout the movie and all this, this sort of chorus, kill yourself starts Mm -hmm. to you know crescendo in this scene all these characters start compelling him to kill himself and or set up a circumstance by which he will kill himself and you know i think that scene if this movie has a lot to say and i'm not 100 sure that the movie does but if it does which is which sounds more dismissive than i mean to but if it does it's all right there Mm. Because what I wrote down is what a fascinating look, and I would say that is cultivated very much in the church, and I'll put a pen there and we can come back to that, Hmm. what a fascinating look of the ways we shame ourselves Hmm. by the ghosts of our sin.
0: Oh, Nathan Rouse, that is great.
1: And it could not be more illustrated, even though I, I, I don't want to cap out too much on the literalism of this, but go with the metaphor here. It takes place in a pornographic emporium.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. Like
1: I, I was just I was so floored again. I don't even know that it's totally intentional, but it does. And this is why I would say American Werewolf in London takes the seeds of the Wolfman universe Wolfman. And suddenly just like lays them all out in front of you. Right. Because because it's not even just, hey, we are troubled in Mm. our undead state. Right. It is you did this. Go kill yourself for having done so.
0: Mm. Mm hmm. Yes.
1: And I think there's a conversation that we can even just tiptoe up towards because we aren't at the capacity I don't mean because we're tired. That's not what I mean, but we, we between the two of us and the time we have don't have within us the ability to completely unpack this. But right. I think there's something so fascinating about that moment and the way and I'll make this direct leap now from the movie to the real, the way church culture historically and stereotypically. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, cultivates shame and guilt in the believer Mm -hmm. to the point of self-harm read my wife and i were just talking last night this is slightly unrelated but one of our children is experiencing some anxiety that's kind of new to her and and it, it, it is frankly slightly like Unnerving as a parent to enter these new phases, especially as your child develops and you know, you're you're like, oh my gosh, this is heavy and new and I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm laying a few stepping stones here to get us back there. Well, we started talking. I've talked for a number of years about homeschooling or not our children. Mine is less a I want them to have a, the best education possible or I want them to have a Christian education. Clearly, if you've listened to this long enough, you know, I might not think the quote unquote Christian education is the best option, mine has been more reaction to this culture of anxiety we're creating in our children through lockdown drills and active shooters regardless my point is we were talking about this notion of what it means to the distinction that we might make between altering a life choice and retreating and she was telling a story about this family at a local church Who and i didn't know this story but she has a peer who's connected to this family at this local church every year the church celebrates this young person who passed away a number of years ago Mm. um and read the story is this family which is just like this you know the picture perfect it's the family you want i don't even say that cynically it's it's just this really rich sort of family experience they they homeschool their children and one of the children commit suicide mm. and the conversation my wife and i were having was just this kind of sobering cognizance of <laughs> it doesn't matter you know the the oppression of your own guilt and shame will be enough of its own yeah. like like we are so good at already kind of culti- or, or letting fester guilt and shame in us
0: sure um
1: sure. that to just retreat or in this case oh look they were a Homeschool family, too, and i I really don't mean to camp out on the homeschool thing simply to say like even pivoting away from the sort of common path right isn't this way of like certifiable health right right um I'm kind of finding my way through these thoughts right now, but I just think there's something fascinating to take away from this scene in this movie that can and maybe should speak volumes to us as believers who read lackey my dear friend who has spent decades the 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 child of a pastor and enmeshed deeply in the church life experience we drill down so hard on you knowing and experiencing and being viscerally aware of your sin
0: yeah right right
1: and son of a b man what we don't do read I think, and this is a very biased point of view. What we don't do is say, you know what? Yes, you are, you're, you're going to do things. You're going to feel bad for those things. It's, there's, a, there's a smidgen of rightness to how bad you might or should feel for those things. Right. But Jesus is so good. Yeah. He's so good. Right. He's so good. And these things just don't ultimately matter. Yeah. And it's going to be hard and it's going to be painful. But I'm going to walk through those things with you. And Jesus has gone before you yes. and he is our template for good living and right living and whole living. And, and we're going to get through these little bumps, but that's what they are. They're little bumps. They right. are not the sum total of you. Mm-hmm. They are not the thing by which you should ever draw identity.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I didn't really actually mean to get this quite in this impassioned, sure.
0: no, but keep, yeah, keep going.
1: I think that scene is just so resonant as, as a man, as a thirty-eight year old man who grew up in a sex-saturated American culture, as a Christian, I thought this is that this scene is all of it. Like yeah. I never suffered with extreme self-flagellation that way, you know, like
0: right, right, like,
1: extreme guilt and shame. But you know, I came to the church, evangelical church culture, a little later than a lot of people. Definitely, I know than you. Yeah. Um, and so, and so I didn't inherit a lot of that sort of predisposition. Mm, mm-hmm. Um, but you see it. You yeah. See it oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Anyway, I, I'm talking a whole lot. What What are you feeling or thinking?
0: Oh, uh, sincerely. So, so much. Um, <laughs> did, did you
1: have any clue this was going to come out of this? No,
0: <laughs> but I'm so glad it did. Like the moment you said it, I was like, dear Lord. Yes. Yes. And amen. Um, Because. So so the first thing that I'll say is, yes, I grew up in a uh, you know, as as the phrase goes, I cut my teeth on church pews. I think I've said that before on on the show. Um, My grandfather was a pastor. My father uh, is a is a retired pastor and uh yes my my f- parents friends were all because my mom worked as a, a an administrative assistant to the general bishop of that um state that region uh where the denomination resided so they were saturated with Church people church culture church language if the doors were open we were there and sometimes that wasn't just Wednesday night Bible study and you know two services on Sunday sometimes that was you know prayer meeting on Monday night and then we have the social on Tuesday night and you so you know sometimes every single night and then you would have week-long revivals and you're just saturated with it and one of the pervading thoughts that I have spoken to um, I want to be sensitive to discretion. Um, so I'm about to speak about people who are very close to me. I will speak in very veiled ways that is for their sake and uh, and possibly for mine. Um, but you have conversations with people who grew up in that culture, people I love dearly. I grew up in that culture and you have conversations with them about how they are, they sometimes live terrified, terrified of right. getting something wrong, doing something wrong, making a mistake. Um, it was said to Dear beloved family members of mine by dear beloved family members of theirs. If you do a thing and then the rapture takes place, you won't go. And so you live in this constant pervasive and I'm not opening up a can of, you know, I'm not opening up Pandora's box on that conversation, but you live under this constant dread of you always have to get it right. You always have to say and do the exact right thing in every living and breathing moment. And what happens is when a mistake is made, then you have a facade that develops that your easiest choice is not to uh, confront The the transgression and not to, you know, bring it up into the light for the sake of healing and wholeness and focus on how we can how we have literally in our hands the means for restore for restoration, but instead to hide it. And what happens when we hide it is it festers and it grows and then it gains more power and eventually You know, as the book of Numbers says, uh, this is not the scripture I have in mind for this, but as the book of Numbers says, your sin will find you out. And what I experienced and what I, so I'll I'll say this, as you were talking, um, a few things resonated out to me. Um, I'm going to get to the one that resonated most with me in a second. One thing that resonated to me is there's a lot of scenes in the first like third of this movie where David's in a hospital. He's in a hospital because he has suffered this these injuries and to what people don't know what he doesn't even know at that moment is that he has a festering sickness residing in him that uh, needs to be excised that there needs to be some cure for but the doctors don't don't know or understand that Um, and so they're just treating his wounds as normal regular wounds or maybe a psychosis or maybe something like that but i thought about this hospital metaphor and a dear friend of mine had once said I believe somewhat prophetically that he believes that that is what the church should be, that it should be very much like a hospital, which has no judgment whatsoever on any person walking through the door that needs the assistance, the care that that hospital provides, but also has zero tolerance for the sickness, disease or wound that brought them there. And what happens right now is we've so conflated and identified the sin with the sinner, We've so married those two ideas that we can't separate it out, and that's why we've come to believe, I think, at large that the only solution is to not sin, as if that were even possible. That right, the only right, solution right, is right. to never do anything wrong, as if, again, that were even something human beings were capable of. And so what I thought about as I'm, I'm thinking about this, that, that's sort of the first thing, is this idea of the church as hospital. Because I hear you, and you have two extremes, You have the extreme where the sin has so much power in our language, and it has so much power that, like you said, the powerfully resonant metaphor. The ghosts of our sin is constantly haunting us and constantly dragging our self-image down, convincing us, like is said in the film The Exorcist, that we are animal and ugly and there is no way a good God could love us, and and dragging us into this pit of despair that, hey, you are so saturated with your sin that there's just no hope for you. You'd, You'd best just punish yourself, best just off yourself and be done with it. So there's that extreme. But then the other the other extreme is kind of what I was scratching at a minute ago is where you will begin to hide it and you will begin to let it fester and rot. And we also have seen how many God save us and help us. How many stories do we hear about prominent evangelical leaders or the entirety of what the Catholic Church is going through right now, where that, when that sin is unearthed, and not only is it unearthed, but the decades and years, and God forgive us, sometimes centuries of cover-up that comes with it is unearthed with it, and that's also the wrong response. And I think both of those responses, both of those extremes, either you know slaughter yourself because of it, or let's pretend it doesn't even exist, both of those are wrong. Both of those are i will go ahead and say evil because they produce evil things in you they will either produce such a low Uh, quality of self in you uh, that you will want to do yourself harm You will have a psychosis break. You will not think properly and rightly about yourself. You will become obsessed about sin to the degree that sin itself will have this this insane power over you or you'll go the other route where you're like, well, we can't acknowledge or admit that this exists. We can't acknowledge or admit that this is a possibility and in that cover-up, in that hiding, then you only give sin more power over you. You only allow It to fester you only allow it to reproduce and then suddenly you have systemic corruption all the way up to the top and both of those are are evil and wrong. What I love so much, and this is the immediate passage, uh, the story that jumped out to me, and this is perhaps a bit obvious of a notation, but I think it's very uh, relevant to your observations about this film and about that scene specifically, is the scene of the adulterous woman that is brought before Jesus. And so she's brought very specifically by men who are hiding what they've done Hiding their own complicity, and she's brought in front of him, and she's laid out, and she said, the law says we should do this to her. What do you say? And most of our listeners will know the story, even if they're not believers, because it's a very popular story. But Jesus, after writing in the sand, and the story does not, let, does not tell us what he's writing. I won't speculate on it here. But he's writing in the sand as these people surrounding this helpless, naked woman laying bare her sin for all to see. And, ask as, and, and it must be noted that they are doing so as a trap to Jesus. The scriptures specifically call out that this was a trap for Jesus. And then he looks up and says that profound statement of wisdom and says, he among you who is without sin can cast the first stone. Now, that moment is powerful. The moment that follows it is powerful where they one by one, starting with the oldest and moving down to the youngest drop their stones and walk away and leave the moment. That moment is powerful. But then Jesus stands up and goes to the woman. And that's the part of the scripture that I'd like to read at this moment. He stands up and he goes to the woman. He goes to this naked, scared, terrified, huddled woman. And it says in John chapter eight and verse 10, it says, Jesus straightened up and asked her woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. She said, and Jesus says in verse 11, then neither do i condemn you jesus declared go now and leave your life of sin and i think what you said is so powerful nathan that there is a better answer there is a precedent for us that is a better answer to this which is this simultaneous recognition of no there's no place for condemnation here there's no place for yes there there may be consequence Let us not be unambiguous about this. Sometimes the atrocities that human beings do to one another demand consequence. Sometimes they demand a a breed of repercussion. But that is a very different thing than utter and systemic condemnation. I mean, you look at some of the one of the things we referenced last week on, uh, you know, how Dawn of the Dead opens, like with a Johnny Cash song. Uh, One of the things that Johnny Cash in his life felt very passionate about was performing for prisoners, was, was speaking specifically to prisoners. And I think there is a way in which we can we can come to a feel like, okay, I've done this thing. So I am utterly cast out, utterly condemned, utterly irredeemable. And I don't think that's the right answer. Even if there is tremendous consequence to what we've done but i don't think as as the ghosts of our sin would say to us hey you're hopeless you're hopeless you're done the right, only thing right. to do is just to to throw the baby out with the bathwater to be done with it that's not what jesus says in this story to the adulterous woman and that's not what i believe we should say the better way is also not to okay let's just pretend this doesn't exist let's let's paint over the the veneer of our life that we understand the scriptures that we know that we do not walk in in constant sort of struggle against our own sinful natures. Let's just pretend that these things don't exist. Let's pretend they never happened. That's also not the answer. His answer is, like you said, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. And like you said, okay, uh, there is Jesus is just so good that he would take a moment at like this and say, okay, that in the past, that was in the past. Let us walk through the consequences repercussion. Let us take ownership of it. Let us face the consequences. And as we've speculated about before, sometimes the consequences mean that tomorrow will not look the same as yesterday. And sometimes that's okay. Sometimes it's okay that everything is lost so that that your own life can be found. Sometimes it is okay that because of everything that happened, there is a penalty that must be paid and, and because of our own decisions and our own choices, we must step into those penalties and we must own them and we must, you know, take account for them. But at the same time, there does not have to be condemnation. There does not have to be this utter irredeemable uh, sort of cloud hanging over you that says, okay, now there's nothing but condemnation. Instead, there can be this juxtaposition because of how good Jesus is that says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Because it also, and this will be my last statement, it also does not in the midst of redeeming you Enable you to further perpetuate wrongdoing in your life. It does not then say, okay, go. It's it's not a cop out that you can keep just then coming back to. It is not only the forgiveness and redemption of what you have done but it also the empowering to do better the empowerment to go forth and to produce wholeness and goodness this time. And, uh, and I think both of those must be taken into consideration in this moment. That's you asked me what I was feeling. That's what I was feeling. Yeah,
1: no, I mean, I, I'm about to explode. I'm
0: about to, turn,
1: <laughs> I'm about to turn into a shaggy dog and run right <laughs> to, through the forests of Charlotte like, in- not, indeed. with energy. So I'm going to try to ignore because when this finally airs, who knows what will have transpired, but I'm going to try to ignore for the moment, uh, the cultural application, literally right now, of men dragging a lone woman out into the light Mm, uh, mm -hmm. to expose her, to discredit her, to shame her. Uh, But there's an extremely applicable uh, corollary that's occurring in our culture right now. So I'm going to ignore that one for the moment because I want to make this more personal. And if, if we can't find ways to make the things we're learning and discussing personal, then what kind of good are they? Mm. I, I think you and I actually had a conversation about this and I don't totally remember what its anchor was uh, several months ago about the prevalence and, and, and increasing rate of suicide in our culture right now. Mm. Um, And like, I hear you and this, and I'm about to not put words in your mouth, but maybe take what I, what I'm hearing a little bit Mm. and pivot it away. Okay. I don't think this is actually what you were saying, but I'm taking some of the language you're using and, and sort of jumping on it a little bit because like Dawn of the dead conversation, I want my ends and my means to be totally in sync.
0: Right, right.
1: When and where I can, and whether or not to to tinker with them until I can make them so, I just think we have fallen off the ledge, like legion into the pigs
0: mm.
1: of this is Nathan talking, this is not Reed talking of our sin emphasis mm. because part of me, and i don't I'm not enough of a greek scholar and don't have the scripture in front of me to know the roots of what is sometimes interpreted as go and sin no more the way you phrased it just there was leave your life of sin we just don't know what literally that's referring to in that moment Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. it, it we often will choose to interpret it as he's saying to this adulterous woman never commit adultery again like Oh uh, you
0: know, no, I understand what you mean. Is, is right. he?
1: I, I don't know. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying he's not. I'm not necessarily. I'm certainly not necessarily saying he is. I think there's such a way that we have. We we live in a culture right now that reminding your children are going to grow up with literal constant voices.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Like you and I grew up with internal voices. Mm -hmm. with community voices. Right. We did not grow up with literal, constant, multiple competing, conflicting, condemning
0: voices. Right.
1: And so there's such, I, I think there's such a way. Oh my God, we have to be a shield. Mm -hmm. That steps in when the woman is being, exposed, or the children are being molested, Mm -hmm. or the sinner is being shamed.
0: Right, right.
1: And say, it's okay. Jesus is good and loves you deeply, and it's okay.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And stand up, and I'll walk with you. Yeah. With no caveat. Right. With no, but don't forget your sin. Mm -hmm. With no leave your life of sin. I'm referring to this specific thing that you just did simply and only and solely come with me to something better. Mm -hmm. Because I think we historically in the church have done what now the constant competing, conflicting, condemning voices are now, are now heaping upon our children we have burdened them and made them responsible for what we might call original sin yeah we said oh it's a shame that your sin killed jesus if you don't want to burn here's the roman road i'm being very reductive right there but maybe not too much so and i think what does it look like because we talk a lot about exploring and explaining. This is me explaining me right now. Like to me, if the language to a child or a young believer or to any human is you are responsible for Jesus death, or you are bound to hell without X. If we are, if we are part of foisting these burning coals upon people, what we are doing is administering a half truth at best and a false gospel at worst mm. to me. This is me explaining. This is me in my, I, I honestly had no clue. This was all going to get stirred up.
0: No, I hear you. I, um,
1: hear you. I think we are murdering ourselves in the name of Jesus mm. and we are shack. We are bondaging our children for the shame we never dealt with.
0: Right. Right.
1: Um, I think we are leaving Jesus on the cross Ignoring the life of goodness,
0: mm-hmm.
1: the teachings of wholeness, the resurrection of eternity. We're, we're ignoring those things. This, that's a very broad brush, and I get it. But no. That is what it feels like in observing the way we are conducting ourselves as a church in this culture. And I'm not even going to distinguish between Catholic and Protestant. As a church, as the church in this culture, that right. is what it feels like we're doing.
0: Yeah, I, I, I hear you. So so some of some of what I'm about to respond to will will sound contrarian and I actually really don't intend
1: <laughs> no, I really no, don't in,
0: I really don't intend it to be.
1: I'm you, finding these thoughts as they're coming to me, so you know, whatever. You be, be a jerk. I'm
0: just, no I know, <laughs> I know, sa- I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. You said something that I have a sincere maybe it's a question for you to ponder, maybe it's a question for you to answer right now in this moment, but so you said something And as best I can restate it, um, you said with no caveat, uh, with no leave your life of sin. I'm referring to what you just did. um, Yeah. yeah, yeah. Come come with me into something better. And here's what I will. I I love you. So here's what I'm trying. Here's what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is to me. There is very little difference, very, very little difference, except semantic, to say, leave your life of sin and come with me to something better to me. In my mind, there is very little difference between the the usherance of come with me into something better and leave that old bad thing behind. To, right. so, t- so to me, there is very little dis- like we can we can bark at language. There's a very interesting. Sure, the, there's, sure. a, there's a very interesting book that um, i only just found out about this week i have not had a chance to read it in fact in this moment i wasn't prepared to, to, to mention it so i don't even know the author but i remember the title it is called uh, speaking god from scratch and that's what it, that's what it's called speaking god from scratch and what the book is all about is according to this interview that i heard is all about how certain he doesn't use the phrase trigger words but he said there is sometimes so much baggage associated with words, sure. with specific words, that – and I'm not, I'm not putting you in this camp. I'm simply reciting yeah, no. a, a, an interview. He said certain more progressive thinkers think, well, let's abandon the language. And certain conservative thinkers think, no, let's dig in on the language. We need to right. emphasize the language. And he said his thesis is – we need to define this language. What oh, we I need think to that's
1: do. yes. Yeah. I think that's totally valid. And and hear me, and I know, you know, we are we are iron and sharpening and all that sort of stuff right now. And so like I'm just sort of finding my way through some of these thoughts. Sure. Um, sure. I think I think I think what you sense in me though isn't so much the notion of well and I'm being I'm encapsulating here, but well, I'm a progressive, so I'd say abandon the negative. That's not exactly what I'm after here. I think what I'm trying to figure out for myself so that I can enact this in the real Mm -hmm. to people around me, to my spouse, to my children, most definitely. Right. Is that the call of Jesus and within the call of Jesus is implicit the walking away from a thing.
0: Yeah. Does right that make there. sense? Like, yeah, like, yeah,
1: of course, I think that's all I'm saying is I think, yeah, I would say, and no one, you know, well, Nathan's a progressive. I, I, I didn't even totally know what that word meant. And, and arguably on a certain level, don't semantically totally know how to define that. Until sure. A few years sure. Ago. But I also wouldn't reject that label. Cause it seems like in most ways it does fit me, but, I would say what I'm reacting to is a attempt at a 3000 foot view of what I've viewed of the church, which mm-hmm. is, I mean, now I will say this, the data supports, and you're not refuting this. I know that, but the data supports, we are killing ourselves at a great rate, right?
0: Oh, now. absolutely. No question. There's And so what I'm question.
1: trying to zone in on in a, a, an hour and a half, Movie where I also said an American wiener in London, like I'm trying to zone in on. I think a large portion of why that is is we we shame ourselves to our own death.
0: Oh, absolutely, and the, yes.
1: And and corporately, culturally, of which the American culture is largely has been historically steered by the American church, so it can't totally wash its hands of compl- some sort of complicity there a right. little bit. I'm not. I'm not being real concrete there, but you know what no, I'm saying? I understand. Like, yeah. and so if we're examining why are we culturally literally killing ourselves more than ever before, it may have something to do with a lack of purpose. Right. We don't know. We don't know the end.
0: Yes. Right. So right. we don't know how
1: to figure out the means lack of purpose and shame. These are right. two powerful, powerful things that when you couple them with a culture that insists to be a participant in it you have to have constant voices screaming at you yes it is no wonder and so what i'm trying to one could make the case and perhaps this is sort of what you're doing as my friend and and, and i respect that impulse one could make the case that my efforts right now, linguistically, semantically, are to overcorrect.
0: Oh, To I see say,
1: we have so buried ourselves in our own sin mm-hmm. that we have neglected. We've, we've taken the pie chart of whole living and made 80. We've made two thirds of it sin and half of it. Jesus, I'm making another joke there. <laughs> we've made 80% of it sin or more. Yes. And 20 percent of a Jesus. And I'm simply saying for the moment, I am utterly and totally content because of how good I believe him to be to utterly invert that.
0: Sure. N- sure.
1: You know, and anyway, I'm, I'm just sort of speaking to the. Notion no, it of makes sense. Well, but here's s- semantic.
0: Well, uh, of course. And yes, overcorrection might be a possibility. But I think the reality of it or what we should strive towards um, is so you look at a percentage and I'm going to get super theological for about. 30 seconds, and then I'm going to bounce right back from it you look at the argument of some people say well was jesus uh, all god or was he all man was he 60 40 was he 50 50 was he whatever what you know what was all this thing and in my theological belief my belief is that he was in totality human and in totality divine sure so that's what i believe and, in so, and so in other words to your to what you're saying about like overcorrecting the pie chart i would be like no all of the pie charts are 100% like, right. there is there is no degree of the goodness of Jesus that will eradicate, the, in my mind, the reality of the sinfulness we have to war against. There is no degree of sinfulness in my mind that we have to war against that would eradicate or dilute the goodness of Jesus. And I think that what happens is you have to choose what you are going to leave behind and what you're going to step into. And that, that's how I y- yes,
1: see it. Yes, I would – and if, if you and I were on the phone right now, I would really – not as in I would like challenge that, I- I'm simply saying like this is a Nathan and Reed reel on the phone kind of moment. <laughs> I would challenge the notion for me personally right now in my theology and the reading I've been doing over the course of a couple of years, um which is no better or worse than yours, just
0: say no, I get it yeah, where, yeah, yeah where yeah. it's
1: where it's brought me is I would not associate that a hundred percent man and and you can correct me on this if 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 I'm getting this wrong, I would not say that is representative of sin. Like oh, no, I didn't do No, okay, I didn't okay. do It, that's it, it felt for a moment like, okay, yeah. It felt no. like you were saying, like, we are both of these things in total as as God, or rather God was. You're going to have to choose one of these. Or, anyway, <laughs> in, so. case,
0: in case listeners are also confused. <laughs> man, what is happening with <laughs> I know. this movie? So, in case listeners are also confused, I was not correlating. That's Gnosticism. I was not correlating man as sin. I was making a comparison of pie charts. Then we can still
1: be friends.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was making a comparison of pie charts of how we so often want to pit things in a binary way and say, well, you can't have 60% of a thing without having 40% of another thing. And what I was saying is like, no, if you want to compare two different things, you can have 100% of a thing and 100% of another thing that can be simultaneously true. So there was no correlation between man equals sin divine equals goodness nothing sure. like that it was all just about you can have 200% in my in my understanding of things you can have a a a person an individual so let me say this because maybe because of my relevant recent information um i have had conversations i'm going to be terribly sensitive here in the past 3 weeks i have had no less than three conversations Three different conversations with three different individuals who mean a great deal to me. And in all three of those conversations, the situation was such that they were somewhat fearfully speaking to me about something that had entered into their life and caused a tremendous amount of destruction. And in in all of those instances, they were relational in nature. And I, I, I know I'm being vague. That's to protect my loved ones. So they were telling me, we let this thing creep in. We made these choices along the way because we thought we were empowered to do so. And the end result in all three of the instances that I, uh, that I was addressing was destruction of the relationship. And in all three of the instances, two of them blatantly told me they didn't think it could be repaired. And the third one claimed that they would like it to be repaired, but didn't know if it could be. And so what some of what you 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 sense in me rising up, there is no dilution in my mind. The power of the gospel, the goodness of Jesus can override anything, period. End of sentence without nuance. But I do think there is and no shame. There should be no shame. What I said to one of these loved ones, um, and I, I think I may have mentioned it to all three because it's been on my mind a lot. I said, here's the deal. You're not going to sense from me judgment or condemnation of your actions or your choices. That's largely irrelevant to me. What I do believe is that the choices we make can deposit toxicity into our relationships. And because they can deposit poison there and because they can deposit things that will disrupt and undermine us in our future wholeness and health. I said to one uh, loved one of mine, I said, what I want for you. Is your best possible shot at future wholeness and happiness and if you go if you continue to go about this thing this way yes we can call it sin if we want to but if you continue to go about this thing this way I have serious doubts about your future wholeness and happiness because the way you're going about it is depositing continual toxicity and I think. I don't think you're wrong. In fact, some of my sort of kickback against some of the language may be viewed as an ideological disagreement with you when in my mind I don't think we have one. Sure, I don't sure. I don't think there is any there's no argument in my mind that would say, "Hey, Jesus coming and saying, come leave your life of sin and come into something better." I'm like, "Yes and amen." And I think that some people focus too much on the way to live your life of sin is to just stop doing the things. And I don't know that that's possible. And I sure as hell don't believe that the answer or the way out is just to shine this big glaring spotlight on it and make people live in fear or dread of that thing. I don't think that's the answer either. I don't think that's what it is. I think the answer, as I would reductively put it, is simply to respond to the invitation and then let him lead you wherever he would take you. I think that to me is how I interpret that passage in John 8. This language of the gospel and sin is simply respond to the invitation to step into something better, to leave that that sinfulness behind and step into whatever the lord has for you moving forward that's what i i think a a focusing on the sin is just as damaging or dangerous as an overcorrection and ignoring it i think giving sure, it to, sure, sure. giving it too much power either way because you're either making right. it the center of everything or you're pretending it doesn't exist. I think there is this third way, as we frequently reference things. I think there is this third way in which you can say, no, there is a way that you can step deeper into this. And that way is following the lamb, the savior, the king, whatever length, semantic language you want around it, that he knows the way out and follow him. And that's, that's why we compel and why we bid and why he bids us to come and follow him. And I do think that that is, uh, that that is, that that is possible. Um, I never in a million years suspected it to stem from an American werewolf in London, but but yeah, there it is. Um, Now I will say, so, so I will say like, we've been, we've been going quite a while. Um, If, if you have more burning that you want to say, then I want to give you the freedom to do so. If you want to, we can wind it down here and, and save it for another time. But I lovingly defer to you as, as you wish.
1: I mean, I think it's just a rich conversation. So I'm always, I'll always lament putting bows on what could just keep going. Sure. And, And I guess. I guess any further dialogue would just be kind of um, pulling at the thread, as opposed to necessarily something real, burning, def- definitive, or decisive to say. I just. I guess. I guess a final thought in response to what you just said, and 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 you were being intentionally vague, and I can respect that. I think I wouldn't want to be misunderstood either, in the sense that I think. By no means am I suggesting we just pretend sin is a non-entity in life, and, and we will never be sort of you know, experience struggle with it. Sure. Um, I, think, I think simply that we've made it so much uh, a noose around our own necks. We let ourselves be blinded by it in a, yeah. in a function that I think in our efforts, um, as we grow in Mm, mm christ-likeness and and want to be little christs to those around us that a camping out too heavily or too hard in that zone may not have the effect i think jesus is after in our lives that's yeah Yeah, that's right that's a a decent way to sort of put a button on that. Um, Amen. American Werewolf in London. I love the 80s, Reed. What about you?
0: (laughs) I do. I do. I love them so much. I love them. So
1: So as we do every episode, let's welcome David S. Pumpkin. Thank goodness. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. uh, So we we measure every film on three specific metrics, that of style, Scares and substance um, style. I'm gonna give 1981's John Landis and American Werewolf in London on styles, which I would equate to liking. I think I think there are a lot of easy dings one might could apply to this movie, um, but I think its general good-natured sensibility and my unpreparedness for what I got. I'm gonna I'm gonna. S- I'm tempted by a four that feels strong. Okay. But I'm feeling strong. So I'm going to give it a four. All
0: right. All right. I'm not going to argue or debate that uh, very much at all. For me, it's a four. There are some, I mean, it could, there are individual moments that would be fives all by themselves. Uh, We've already mentioned them. Um, But yes, as a whole, as a piece, uh, I think four feels right um, for me. So I would give it a four for style. Um, For scares, I mean, this one, this one's tough because I actually do think there's a lot of comedy that kind of undermines the potential fear factor. Sure. Um, but that transformation scene is just so effective. And so are some of those dream sequences. Um, I'm uh, Three and a half feels right. So I'm going to give it I'm going to give it a three and a half on the scares measurement.
1: Um, I am going to go with a three. I don't. I think I think yeah I think you just said this I'm still kind of lost in my head at the moment um, but I think you just said the scare the transformation factors into a lot of your choice on your sure yeah your scare metric um, I would say it's almost the wolf's share of it for me so I'm going <laughs> yeah. to stick with a three for substance you know I I think that movie tripped over profundity. Um, like, I don't think the movie is quite as thoughtful as what I think. Now, I don't think I pulled that out of thin air. um, No, I get it. Yeah. But I don't know that the movie is as aware of what it may have done as, as, as we sort of read into it. So I'm going to give it, uh, I'll give it a three and a half on substance.
0: Okay, um, I think I'm going to land right there with you on the substance measurement. It's like th- again, just three and a half kind of feels right for yeah. for this kind of thing. And uh, yeah, I do think that it sort of stumbles past some profundity rather than actually uh, diving into it.
1: Um, so where that lands us on our David S. Pumpkins meter for our very first entry into this year's I Love series, that being. <laughs> I love the 80s. Is a seven out of ten. David S. Pumpkins for an American All right. Werewolf in London. That is solid, yes. man.
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's our favorite rating that we give everything. We don't give it we're, everything though, but we're it is generous. <laughs> it is very, very good. I mean, American Werewolf in London is a seminal eighties uh, werewolf film. If you have not seen it, uh, be warned of s- some nudity uh, and be warned of you know some uh, some potential you know like language and stuff like that. Particularly when he's trying to get himself arrested but um but yeah so but it is still it's a very fun movie it's a very uh uh, there's some moments that are just absolutely wonderful and really impactful and even if you have no interest in seeing this movie at all i would recommend youtubing the transformation sequence because holy cow it is outstanding um it's good so yeah
1: thank you for being a gracious friend and letting (laughs) me work out my faith with fear and trembling
0: (laughs) as always and anytime so ladies and gentlemen (laughs) next week we are going to count down another we're going to count down number 40 through 31 and next week (laughs) i don't even know how it's going to go but next week another film from your top 10 from the 80s we are going to be diving into the sam Raimi directed The Evil Dead. Ladies and gentlemen, it has finally happened. Next week, right here, The Evil Dead. Uh, Yes. Join us. (laughs) That's perfect. Join us.
1: We'll see you next week, guys. Bye.
0: The Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God. You can like and follow us on Facebook or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram at Fear of God Podcast. Go to morethanonelesson.com for show notes or to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official episode posts. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.